morning to you. Uh, you have an extra hour of light, but it's got snow on the ground and 12 degrees outside, so <laughs> I'm not sure how those two things go together. Uh, I am delighted to be with you this morning, and uh, I love that song, that uh, there's no one like you, which the author of Hebrews has been trying to tell us now, going into nine chapters, and in some ways, this is a big message of the Bible. So, uh, if you would, uh, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 15. And uh, just a reminder that God speaks. He is not silent. He speaks through his word when you read it and when it is taught uh, publicly. So, my prayer is that God would speak to you this morning in very specific ways uh, from his word. I looked up the definition of a mediator. We've been talking about mediator, Christ being our mediator, all through the book of Hebrews. The title this morning is to specifically look at the work of the Lord Jesus as a mediator. And so the definition is this, a person who mediates to help settle a dispute or create an agreement when there is conflict between two or more people or groups by acting as an intermediary or go-between for the parties involved to bring about reconciliation. Now, if you're like me, you, in an informal way, have played the role of a mediator when there was conflict, even if it's with your little kids, right? Or you've asked for help, like I have, and I have had others play the role of mediator in my life. And as I did a little research this week, it was nearly unanimous. Survey says that the three greatest mediators in the history of the world were Nelson Mandela, Theodore Roosevelt, and Henry Kissinger. And these men, they said literally, on a human level, level altered the course of history. Shave, saved tens of thousands of deaths of people in bloodshed and ushered in eras, eras of peace in the U.S. and around the world. The point being this, how good your mediator is matters. The better he is, the better results for reconciliation you get. And in some ways, that's what the writer of Hebrews has been hammering home to us here. He's been making the same point about our mediator in Christ. And, and here's what, as I continue to get in this book, I've realized there's been lots of repetition. Anybody else notice that? Great teachers know that. And here's what he's doing. He's been telling us what he's going to tell us. Then he tells us. Then he tells us what he told us he would tell us. And then he reviews. And in chapter 9, there's a review. That's what it is. Monty did the first half last week. I'm doing the second half this week. So yeah, he's been hammering home the vital truth of this. There's no one like Christ, what we're just saying. He's superior, he is supreme, he is all-sufficient, and his sacrificial death for our sins is the thing that matters. Matter of fact, he's trying to say to his audience to turn to any other thing for, to, for salvation other than Christ is spiritually fatal. So while men like Kissinger and Mandela and Roosevelt may alter the course of history, our mediator actually 
alters the destiny of human souls. That's why he's greater, or one of the many reasons. So, in some ways, the writer of Hebrews knows that the Jewish Christians, if they don't get this, they will not persevere. <laughs> like, so he just keeps pressing. So what he does in verses 15 through 26, he hits the review button for us, taking some different angles about our mediator in Christ. And then he brings this entire first nine chapters to a crescendo in verses 27 and 28. Crescendo is a big word for spiritual explosion. How do you like that for just definition? So let me read with us, if you could, uh, verses 15 through 22. He says, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved or will and testament is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet and wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So, the first thing I think we need to notice is that verse 15 is really a summary of all of chapter 9, and it is clear biblically, I think we know this, that you and I need a mediator between us and God, because there's no doubt there's a conflict that's happened, and we need a go-between for reconciliation. The Bible clearly teaches that we are enemies of God, Monty mentioned that. Uh, or words like that in the communion setup. We are alienated. We are hostile in mind. We suppress his truth. And just by nature, we are children of wrath. That's an overview of what it teaches. But the writer here says that he, Christ, is a mediator of a new covenant versus, did you notice, the old covenant, or he called it here, the first covenant. It's mentioned there. It's mentioned in verse 18. Here's what he's doing. Here's, here's what he doing. Here's what he is doing. How about that? Uh, he is simply reminding us of what he said in chapter 8, verses 8 through 12, about Jeremiah's words, the prophet, who explained and laid out 600 years before Christ was born what the new covenant was. We taught on that a few weeks ago. But for our text, a quick reminder. In this new covenant, Jeremiah says in Hebrew 8, uh, Jeremiah 31 and in Hebrews chapter 8, uh, God no longer writes his laws, his truths on cold tablets of stone outside the heart, but he moves by his spirit 
and writes his truth and his law on the hearts of men and women who come to trust him. And what he does, he gives us the desire to obey that truth through his spirit like we didn't have before one comes to Christ. And then he actually makes us love. This is how we start to obey. We actually begin to love the lawmaker, the one who gave the law. In addition, it says in the New Covenant that he remembers our sin no more. Where in the Old Covenant, Hebrews 10.4 tells us, it is impossible for the blood of goats to take away the sin. So the New Covenant, simply put, is the gospel. It is the great news of the gospel. And that's what he's doing in verses 15 through 22. He's given this this great reminder of great news of the gospel where God sent his his son, born of a virgin. And yes, being born of a virgin matters. Then the reason it matters, because if he was born of an ordinary woman, he would be born in sin, but he's not. He's born of a virgin. He's perfectly clean of sin. He keeps his record clean by obeying God's law perfectly. And because he is fully God and fully man, he can be our mediator. And in that, This is a reminder, what he's doing in these three verses. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us because all of us, like sheep, have gone what? Astray. And in that, God laid upon him the iniquity of us all, the just for the unjust. And the great news keeps coming in the gospel because God imputes the righteousness of Christ to you and I, and then he imputes the sinfulness of us to Christ. It just keeps coming. And then he adopts us into his family. And because he begins to change us from this new covenant spirit indwelling in the love of his word and the love of the lawmaker, he begins to, because we're adopted in his family, we begin to resemble the father. We begin to resemble this new family that we're a part of. And then he saves us from the penalty of sin. He saves us from the power of sin. And when we die, he saves us from the presence of sin. That's the new covenant. And here's what can't happen. That can't get old. That must stay fresh. Whenever we begin to drift spiritually, when we become apathetic, we got to go back to that. That is a reminder of great news, and the writer of Hebrews has been talking about it for nine chapters, and he just hammers it again here in the beginning of chapter nine. If it gets old, we are in trouble. And then in verses 16 and 17, our writer sort of gives us, I'm calling it this new slant on the new covenant as he continues to contrast it with the old covenant. He compares the new covenant, did you notice, with a last will and testament. And we know, I think most of us know, a last will and testament. How many of you actually have one? If you don't, personal freedom here, you need to go get one. Took me years to do that. But we know a last will and testament does what? It's a legal piece of paper a person writes to tell others, uh, to tell others where your stuff goes when you die. My three sons have wanted to know, hey, what am I getting? I got nothing, right? <laughs> Joel, your mom and Joel's getting in all my dad. 
So he's saying here the new covenant equals or is like a last will and testament. And here's what it does. It gives validity and life to the legal document of a will. He says, when a death takes place, meaning it doesn't come to life. A will or last testament doesn't come to life until someone dies. To give validity and life to the new covenant, a death had to take place. So he's saying that the new covenant is based upon or given validity or ratified or given life when Christ dies. We also know that a last will and testament tells us who gets the inheritance, as I mentioned. And we're going to look at that later and exactly what that inheritance is and who are the heirs of that will. Again, we'll get to that. And then in verse 18, Arthur now makes this argument. Even the old or first covenant was validated with blood. So he goes back to the old Mosaic covenant. It says the new covenant is validated or ratified by the shedding of blood and death of Christ. But the old covenant, remember, it was also given validity by blood, meaning something had to die. Or put it another way, though it was not crystal clear in the old covenant that the death of the Messiah would be the foundation of the new covenant, it was fuzzy, it was foggy. But there were pointers. Remember, we've been talking about that. There were clues. There were hints, if you would. And they were found in the required deaths of animals that anticipated or foreshadowed the death of Christ. So even the old covenant was validated, he's saying, by death, which makes it sort of like a last will and testament of what happens when a last will and testament is validated. Now, here's what else we know. A last will and testament cannot, or a dead person cannot execute his own will. It doesn't happen, right? So, he's saying here the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the installation of him at the right hand of the Father as our mediating high priest is what releases the inheritance to the heirs. Jesus is the executor of God the Father's will. And it is he who guarantees every person who has placed their trust in Christ, he is the guarantee that you will get all you are supposed to get in this life and the next. And the three big categories are he guarantees you will be justified, that God will look at you just as if you've never sinned and always if you've done what's right. He will guarantee your sanctification. As Philippians 1 says, that he will continue to work and complete in you the work that he began. He is growing you. And I would say to me and to you, do not dismiss your circumstances. They are for your sanctification. He is more committed to your growth and maturity in him than you could ever be. And then he will guarantee your glorification that when you die, you will be perfect. You will be clothed with the righteousness of Christ and you will spend eternity in him. Now, the question is, who gets this inheritance? Look at verse 15. Those who are called by God, those who are saved, those who have placed their trust in Christ. And verse 22 tells us there's no forgiveness or inheritance 
where there's no shedding of blood. So, Jesus' mediating work by the shedding of his blood on the cross is what actually unleashes our inheritance. But not only ours. He's saying in these first few verses, it's so powerful, it actually works backwards. And for all of those Old Testament saints that were trusting in this coming of a future Messiah that would shed his blood to forgive their sins permanently, it even releases his forgiveness to them. Even to those, verse, verse, verse 15 says, that are committed, that committed sins under the first covenant. So the first covenant couldn't really forgive permanently. There was a repetition to it. They had to carry it out. But for the Old Testament saints who saw the Old Covenant for what it was, a pointer to a Messiah, a clue or foreshadowing of a Messiah that would shed his blood, it was better. The writer's trying to say, that's what he's saying to his Jewish audience, Christ, that's why Christ is better. Now, to a Jewish audience, Jewish Christians, this is shocking because all their life they had seen this slaughterhouse of bloodshedding. And he is saying, without Christ, none of that bloodshedding means anything. Pound it, pound it home to change their minds and hearts. And then secondly, not only a reminder of great news, it is a transfer in inviter invitation to sinners. Let's read verses 23 through 26. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So here we have a transfer and an invite to sinners. So... Just to remember, for 1,400 years, God willed the death of his son, Christ, to be foreshadowed and anticipated in the history of the Israelites by their sacrifices, through the temple, through the tabernacle, through their animal sacrifices. And then verse 23 tells us something we've seen before. We've seen this in chapter 8 and in other places in Hebrews. All of these things, tabernacle, temple worship, sacrifices, what were they? They were copies, he says, of an even greater reality. They were a copy of reality in heaven, but ultimately these sacrifices were inadequate. inadequate. And the real or heavenly things need better sacrifices. And again, he's saying that's what Christ is, the better sacrifice. And then he comes to this beautiful verse in verse 24. 
For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, temples, tabernacles, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So we see from verse 24 a couple of things. One, there's been a transfer of locations in terms of the presence of God. He's no longer dwelling at the Ark of the Covenant, as Monty talked about a few weeks ago in the temple or the tabernacle. But Christ has entered into heaven, now to appear in the very presence of God. Now, why is that? He tells us at the end of verse 24, listen to these words, on our behalf, for us. The words on our behalf or for us give us the key to why there has to be cleansing in heaven in verse 23. Why? Because we will be there. <laughs> and when we're there, we need cleansing. I wrote last night thinking of this, rewrote this part. I thought, if we love the mercy of God and fully admit our sin, you got to love this. You gotta love this on our behalf. Here's how John Piper put it. The quotes on your page. He says, This is an invitation that says, Come, you dirty ones. Come, you defiled ones. Come, you who have soared yourselves and who have been stained by others. Come to my heaven, for my son is there. And he has not died in vain. He stands guard over my holy place. Not to keep you out, but to make you clean so that you can be with me in perfect holiness forever. Come. If you love the mercy of God and you fully admit your sin, you must love that. Underline, matter of fact, if you have your pens, underline those words. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. And then in verse 26, he now describes how Christ actually achieved this great welcome, if you would, of dirty sinners. So it's no small thing because we know God is holy, God is righteous, he is pure, he is perfect in every way. He hates sin and he loves righteousness it is a reminder that you and I do not compare ourselves to others because if we do, we will think way more of ourselves because we'll pick the very ones that we, quote unquote, don't sin like. We compare ourselves to God and we all fall short by words that are indescribable. Yet at the same time, we must remember that the entire story of the Bible is how a holy and righteous God welcomes sinners into his presence. That's the beautiful tension. Verse 25 and 26. Remember the Old Testament high priest where year after year he had to do animal sacrifices to atone or forgive for sin? The writer says Jesus is work as a mediator, his sacrifice for sin is not like that. Because if it was, he would have to go back and die yearly. And not only that, 
he would have to go all the way back to Adam and Eve to begin his yearly dying. It is not to be repeated, he says. He's saying in some ways, Jewish Christians, listen to me. That would be unthinkable. Look at me when I talk to you. I'm not playing with you. Y'all got crazy thinking. Stop. Jesus is better than that old covenant sacrifice. And look at the end of verse 26b. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus appeared, he says, once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin for the sacrifice of himself. So he's saying the difference between the old covenant, the first covenant, and the new covenant, this old covenant mediator in Jesus, is that Christ did his great work once, once and only once. It's not repeatable. You can't repeat it. The point being the sacrifice was so great, it had no need to be repeated, and it brought back all the lost souls all the way from the foundations of the world, those who placed their trust in the coming Messiah, and all those from now, present, to the future. Christ's work as mediator is enough, he's saying, period. It can't be improved upon, and its, its effect is so huge from the start of time till the end of time, it saves sinners and presents them faultless before the Father. Now, that's a powerful death. That's powerful than a human death that unleashes some monetary will for folks that most folks might not even care about. Secondly, he is saying, verse 26, the death of Christ is the climax of all of history. At the end of ages, he says, you got redemptive history. So you and I are living, or those who have lived since Christ died and rose again, are living in this age of mercy, if you would, where God is gathering his people to himself, but also it's the last thing in redemptive history, except well, there's one more thing to come, which is what? The return of Christ himself. One writer put it this way, he said, if you need some joy, look at the four words in verse 26. To put away your sin. So we got a reminder of great news. We have a transfer and an invitation to sinners to come. And then thirdly, we have an appointment you will not miss. Look at verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Here in verse 27 and 28, we get to the crescendo, to the apex, to the climax of really all that he's been talking about in Hebrews. And he's trying to say to them, Jesus is better. Remember, he's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Levitical priests. He's better than Aaron. He's better than Abraham. He's better than Melchizedek. He's better than anything or anyone, and here's why you got to get that. Because if you don't place your trust in him alone for salvation in his shed blood and work on the cross, you're going to die, and you're going to face judgment. Like, you got to get this.
Everyone is going to physically die and then the judgment. That word appointment means a one-time reservation to die, a destiny for all of us, and it is God who is in complete sovereign control of that appointment with death. To some of us, that's terrifying. To others, it's very comforting. It is meant to be very comforting. It's not left to chance. The Bible teaches when Adam and Eve sinned, human death entered the world, and God appointed the curse of death for every one of their ancestors. Paul in Romans 5.12 puts it this way. Through one man's sin, through one man, sin entered into the world, so death spread to all men. The writer of Ecclesiastes says it's a time to be born and a time to die. If you go home, write Job 14 down and read it. Job gives this summary. Life is hard and short, and then you stand face to face with God. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm telling you, I have missed more appointments, forgotten more appointments than maybe any human on the on the planet. I'm that guy. Hey, I'm calling and said, can I reschedule? There's no rescheduling of this one. You won't miss it. That's why every time I speak at a funeral, I remind myself and those who are there with these words, a funeral is not for the dead, but for the living. To remind us we have an appointment with death. This word once in verse 27 tells us this is crucial for our culture. There will be no reincarnation. That's out of the picture. You're not coming back as a cow. Okay, that's comforting. Or anything else you think you may come back of. The king of Egypt. It's not happening. No one will. There's no purgatory. It's unbiblical teaching. Where you go to a waiting place, if you would, so you can sort of get your good deeds up so you can then make it to heaven. There's no post-death evangelism. Once dead, always dead. And the writer says, and then the judgment. Here's what Jesus said in John 5 about the judgment. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And he has given the Son authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Jesus is the to executor and judge. You want to know how to kill a great conversation with a friend? Ask him this. You ready to stand before the one who knows all things, sees all things, that can judge the motives of your heart? Thank you, I got to go. Our culture is foggy and fuzzy on this. God is not. Many in and out of the church would say, Jeff, we don't talk like that anymore in church. We don't do the fire and brimstorm thing. You're trying to scare us. And Monty and I would say, no, we're more committed to truth than we are how you feel about this. Matthew 25 through 46 says, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. When a person dies, they're in one place or the other. Monty, again, mentioned that in the communion setup. And once dead, 
secure in one place or the other. Jesus is the judge, and those who have trusted in his finished work, there will be complete safety. This is what you and I need to hear. Behind your great mediator, he will be your refuge from the wrath of God. The thing that makes death so dang terrifying is our sin and is the exact thing that the work of our mediator has taken away. On the day of your death, Jesus will stand between you and God the Father. He will look at the Father and he will point back at you and he will say, Father, I absorb your wrath for him or her. They are washed in my blood. They are clothed in my righteousness. And on that day, the shed blood of Christ will cry out on account, on your account, in the courts of heaven, innocent. That person is innocent. On the other hand, the text clearly says, if you've not trusted Christ, judgment will be terrifying. It will be a furious fire and a great act of fully, listen to this, justified divine vengeance forever. I don't know about you, but I know about me, and I know how this should affect us. It should have a profound effect on us to focus on what really matters to God. No more playing Christianity. Clarity and focus. Moses puts it like this in Psalm 90. So to teach us to number our days that we may get the heart, get a heart of wisdom. Wisdom. God's word is such a beautiful gift. There's so many things that are pulling for our attention and our hearts and our minds. It's such a beautiful gift to wake us up so we might stop thinking about what matters little and start thinking about what matters a lot. That's what an appointment that you and I will not miss should do to us. And then lastly, a desire that will expose you. The work of our mediator brings a desire that will expose you. Look at verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. That's a promise not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. In some ways, verse 28 is the very heart of Christianity. It's the heart of the gospel, the heart of God's great work of purchasing back sinners and prisoners, if you would, to sin. There's no doubt this is the greatest, this is the solution to my greatest problem and your greatest problem, no matter what you think your greatest problem is. This is it, and this is the solution. The writer tells us Christ has come the first time to bear the sins of many, and the second time not to deal with sin because he's already done that perfectly, but to retrieve his people and look at who the many are, those who are eagerly waiting for him. In some ways, there's an exhortation here for us that is telling us, trust Christ today and every day in a way that makes you eager for him to come. 
Because reality is, I have lived in such a way on certain days that if I heard the trumpet blow and saw his sandals begin to come, I'm like, no, no, not today. You with me? It doesn't mean I wouldn't be saved, I would. But I'm not living that day as if I'm eagerly awaiting his return. This eager desire for Christ to come again is really a sign or a proof that you and I love him, that we long for him, that we're thankful for his work in our life of growing us in Christ, that we are drawing near to him on our own and with the people of Christ in such a way that, that we are thinking differently about this world and what I love versus him and what he loves. It just shows us this word eager. The older I get, the more eager I get. The more mature I get in Christ, the more eager I am for his return. And it hasn't always been that way. So it's a great way to look. Am I eager for his return? If not, it probably tells you if you know Christ, there is growth needed. This is genuine, mature faith in Christ. Because a faith in Christ that only wants to escape from hell versus eagerly waiting for his return doesn't desire him, that's not what Christianity is about. In some ways, the audience that our writer of Hebrews is speaking to would immediately identify. This would immediately, this picture of eagerly awaiting the mediator, the high priest to return would click with them instantly. Because Jewish historians have talked about that day of atonement when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, as we've explained, with his bells on. They would listen. Is he still alive? And he makes the sacrifice and they would hear him coming back out, and they would see him. All of Israel would cheer and lose their minds that the sacrifice was accepted, and the mediator had returned, and all was well between them and their God for another year. That's the picture. They eagerly awaited the Old Testament mediator as we await the New Testament. So, so what this morning? Man, I, I, there's a thousand so what's here, a thousand applications. I want you to think deeply about what is it that needs to change in your life in light of this truth. This is gospel, pure gospel truth. Two I thought of. We need to focus like a racehorse with blinders on in terms of building the kingdom of God. And that starts at home with your marriage. That goes to your kids. That goes to your work. That goes, as we said, to your time, talent, time, talent, truth, and treasure. Spurgeon put it this way. Eternity is long. It is only reasonable that this short life be lived in light of it. So that's number one. Number two... This kind of truth helps you and I put up with a lot of cray-cray this side of heaven. 
In some ways, this why he wrote it to help us and the Jewish Christians walk well in the midst of this world. Tony Evans put it this way, patience, believer, eternity will right the wrongs of time. Take a minute and ask yourself the question, so what? Lord Jesus, uh, we come to you this morning and grateful that your word is so clear. It's crystal clear about what matters. It's crystal clear about your supremacy, your sufficiency, your superiority. It's crystal clear. Help us, as Psalms 90 says, to number our days to walk well this side of heaven. I pray, Lord, even for our own anxious hearts that because we know that you determine the end of not only the birth of our life, but the end of our life, that you've made an appointment in eternity that that would bring us great comfort, that would free us up to live fully on for you and Lord, when we sin, we have a great mediator to go to. There is grace upon grace. Help us to apply to take many multiple next steps to living for the next life and not this one. And I pray, Lord, you'd give a special insight of how that works at home with our spouses if we're married. With our kids, what does it mean to look to live for eternity while at home? To forgive greatly as Christ has forgiven us, to be tender with one another, to in some ways take the gospel of God's great mercy to us and apply it relationally across the board, starting at home. To create a culture in some ways in our home and in our church and where we live, work, and play that's that is a gospel culture. We love you. We're grateful for your kindness to us in Christ and uh, thankful for the comfort you bring because of the results of your death and resurrection. And everyone said, everyone said,